Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women Speak Out. I'm your host for today, Heather Warburton. I'm the host of Wine, Women, and Revolution, which you can find on my new channel, Create Your Future Productions. And in about a day or so, we'll actually have this forum up on that website if you want to download it in podcast form. We have some awesome and inspiring women today, brought to you all of us here by Madeline Hoffman, who's on the screen with me right now. Say hi, Madeline. Hi, everyone. <laughs> hi, Heather. And all of the women here tonight have one thing in common, and that's their passion and commitment to making the world a better place. And this is such an important conversation to be having, especially right now. Women's rights are human's rights. And sometimes it feels like every step forward we make, there's another step we take back. Despite all our progress, we still have such inequities. For example, Latina women still, only, still make 46% less than a white man. Women's body autonomy is still up for debate. And now we're hearing stories about forced sterilizations in ice camps. So these conversations like we're having today with such strong women's voices are more crucial than ever. And I wanted to get started today with one strong woman who's going to welcome us all here and uh, give us some words of wisdom, Jill Stein. Welcome. And thanks to everyone here today as part of this Women Speak Out on the 100th anniversary of women's right to vote with the passage of the 19th Amendment a century ago. Big thank you first off to Madeline Hoffman. Thank you, Madeline, for bringing us together. And big thanks to all the participants on the panel. In the past 100 years, women have come a long way, but we're also really stuck. And the whole world around us is actually an unprecedented peril, and that includes us as well. So we're gonna hear from some very inspired activists and candidates tonight who are leading the charge for a transformation to a world that works for us all, starting in the communities where we live. At this time of historic crisis in virtually every dimension of our lives, women are in both the target hairs and at the cutting edge of resistance, protesting police brutality and white supremacy, leading rent boycotts and wildcat strikes, distributing food and building mutual aid networks. We're rising up, of course, as the US empire is doubling down with its endless wars and crushing inequality and climate collapse and predatory healthcare in a global pandemic, no less. Women especially are on the front lines of struggle as caregivers for the most vulnerable, for children, elders, and the sick. We're on the front lines of COVID as teachers and healthcare and elder care workers and essential low-wage workers that are at high risk for COVID. As Greens, we're on the front lines of political repression, which is part of this resurgent McCarthyism that we're now witnessing, like of the Green activists, like the embassy protectors who were criminalized for simply upholding international law and working for peace. We've been thrown off the ballot in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin on technicalities just in the past week. And we've been smeared as Russian assets leading to my investigation by the Senate Intelligence Committee for the past three years. It's not exactly subtle. The political elite are trying to silence us, but the amazing thing is, in spite of the smear campaigns and the fear campaigns and the wall-to-wall -wall propaganda that they're spewing against us, it's not working. Over 60% of Americans now say they want a third party that's independent of Democrats and Republicans. And that's according to a poll just done last week by The Hill. 
So don't believe for a minute that what you do is anything but supremely important and very consequential. This effort to silence us should be worn as a badge of honor. It's really a tribute to the power of our message for people, planet, and peace, and the timeliness and the urgency of that message. And it's a sign that the empire knows its days are numbered, even as the economic and political elite are doing all that they can to stay the course. So the rebellion is inevitably going to grow and to continue to grow, as will the political vacuum that's begging to be filled. And that's why it's our job as the only political party that's independent and non-corporate and national in scale it's our job to fill that political vacuum and provide a vehicle for political transformation. We are the ones we've been waiting for. End stage capitalism has arrived and our time has come. The vision and the message of women and greens, of people of color, of the marginalized communities, that message is essential for the fight back. And that message is on behalf of people, planet and peace over profit. Mm -hmm. Together with that message, we are unstoppable. So thank you so much for being here today and for all that you are doing to stand up, to speak out and to rise up. Now I'm going to turn this over to Heather to introduce the speakers and to moderate this awesome panel that we have in store for you tonight. Thank you so very much. All right, and now, without further ado, the woman who brought us all here tonight, I would like to hand it over for Madeline Hoffman to tell us a little bit about why she organized this panel and her run for Senate and all of her activism. Thank you so much, Madeline. Thank you, Heather. Thank you very much. And thank you for offering to host this uh, this program tonight. And uh, loud shout out to everybody who is here and who's going to be participating with us as the, as the night goes on. I don't know about you, but I found what Jill Stein said to be extremely inspiring and right on the mark, right on the mark about what's happening in the world today and what it is we as Greens and as women activists uh, need to think about or how we need to think about ourselves and our role in what's happening and what and how we can be the agent of change and transformation. Um, as you know, as you've said, and as you see in my background, I'm running for US Senate as a Green. Uh, this is my second time running for US Senate. I ran two years ago, I'm running again. We're all activists and candidates now. And some of us may be come candidates or were candidates in the past. And we bring our activism into our campaigns. I know for me, my 20 years of activism as an environmental activist and my 20 years of activism working for peace and justice are what drives me and what brings me uh, into with the fuel uh, and inspiration to keep on going. Uh, I wanted to organize this event, uh, as Jill mentioned, this is the 100th anniversary uh, of the, the ratification of the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. But I also wanted to organize this because there are so many 
incredible Greens and incredible activists running for office this, this election cycle. Uh, it was impossible to have everybody on. You all probably know of other women who should be on or could be on. Um, but when people talk about activism and resistance, unfortunately, too often, it's within the Democratic Party. We hear about those who resist within the Democratic Party. And those of us uh, who are on this call tonight are not, are not like that. We're not funneling our energies into a corporate-dominated, corporate-run party. We're not funneling our energies into the Republicans either, the Republican Party either. We are independent. We are not bought by war profiteers, large corporations, political action committees. We are here as independents who are fighting for a better world, uh, a world of social justice, economic justice, political justice, and peace. And I think we know what we're under. We know what our undertaking is. We know that it that we have a long road, and a lot of it is uphill. But we also know that it's the right and just thing to do. Uh, when you think back to the suffragette movement and uh, getting the right to vote, they weren't handed, the, the women weren't handed the right to vote. Men didn't want to give women the right to vote. Women went out in the streets and organized. And it wasn't something where they organized one day and then they went home and didn't come back. They had to be out, the women had to come out over and over again and pressure for the right to vote. And so all of us, who are activists for this cause, the independent political movement, uh, we know that we're not going to we're not going to necessarily win tomorrow, and we're not necessarily going to win a month from now. But we are doing the right thing and the only thing that we can do to be true to ourselves, to be true to our families, to be true to our country, to be true to the world. Um, standing up for what we believe in and not compromising, not settling for someone who um, doesn't even talk the talk, doesn't even say these things as if to, th and then thinking that, oh, if, if that person is elected, we can move that person to the left. We know that we can't. We know that we haven't been able to do that. And we know that we are standing right where where, where we've been standing where we need to be and we don't nobody needs to move us anywhere um so the current i just just to to throw in one issue one of the the key issues in my campaign um military and war and the military budget of 740 billion dollars plus and how and the that military budget where 57 cents of every dollar of discretionary money goes to the military and perhaps six cents goes perhaps six cents goes to education um, we need to demilitarize this country we need to demilitarize the police we need to defund the military by at least 50 percent we need to defund the police to an extent so that that money that's being used to repress and oppress and beat people is then used for the things that people need, education, healthcare, uh, infrastructure, bridges, roads, and the like. And so um, I invited people from who, who 
are from Colombia, from Palestine. Oh, it seems like we may have lost Madeline again. She's frozen up on us, um, which is sad because her words have been really great and she's such an amazing candidate. And we're really lucky to have her here in the Green Party. Hopefully she will be able to rejoin us again um, once she gets her internet back together again. Um, but, you know, we have a lot of awesome women to get to. And don't forget, as you're watching this, you can ask live questions right here on Facebook or Twitter for the women that are on this panel tonight. And if you want to leave a comment, we can see your comments that you're leaving and we can pop them up on the screen and share them with everybody. So since we do not have Madeline back yet, we're going to go right into our first speaker. We're planning to go alphabetical, but we do have one lady who has to has another commitment tonight, and that's Lisa Savage. So we're kind of getting Lisa to uh, cut in line a little bit here. Welcome to the panel, Lisa, and uh, take it away. Thank you, Heather. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, you sound good. Great. Thank you, Heather. And uh, thank you, Madeline, for organizing this great event. Thank you to all the women that are here. I apologize that I won't be able to stay to the end. Um, as you may know, I'm running for the U.S. Senate uh, here in Maine against uh, Susan Collins, and we have ranked choice voting for this election. So it's been a pretty uh, hot and happening uh, campaign for about a year now that I've been involved. And of course, with the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the emphasis on this particular Senate seat becomes even more um, uh, strong. And so there's just a lot going on right now. Um, I, I really appreciate being included uh, tonight. I was a union organizer and uh, uh, union negotiator during my 25-year teaching career. I've just retired from teaching in the public schools in Maine. And um, I know the power of collective action when people get together and um, decide what they want and decide uh, that they will work together to achieve it. I, I'm kind of one of those people that thinks that there's really not much limit on what could be done by a group of determined and organized individuals. So um, before I uh, decided to run for the U.S. Senate, I was organizing around climate and militarism here in Maine. Um, a coalition of us have been working for years on exactly the type of conversion that Madeline was just speaking about so eloquently, where uh, the vast Pentagon budget here in Maine is mostly being spent on building warships for the Navy. And... Um, it's always touted as a jobs program, and we're always told that they couldn't possibly build anything else at General Dynamics Bath Ironworks plant here. But of course, they could build many other things. And uh, this conversion effort would be the perfect uh, example of what we're talking about when we say a demilitarized Green New Deal that I'm um, running for. One example of this just recently, since the pandemic hit, this shipyard was contacted by um, our current senators with the request, would they consider building some machines that make the nasal swabs that are used for testing COVID-19? Because a factory here in Maine that made them was asked to double production and they said we would need a lot more of the machines. So lo and behold, with uh, Defense Production Act money, you know, a, a federal contract, uh, Bath Ironworks said, sure, of course we could build those machines. We can build anything. And within a month or maybe five weeks, they had built the machines and delivered them um, to help with the pandemic uh, 
uh, testing. So it's an example of exactly what we're talking about. Um, and it also, um, you know, our congressional reps here in Maine, our other senator is an independent. Um, we have a, a couple of Democrats in the representing us in the House now, but in, and then we have um, Senator Collins as a Republican. All of them are always there at the christening of every warship. And when we're, they're challenged on this by their constituents, they always say, but it's a big employer. Uh, we need those jobs. And indeed, in Maine, it is one of the biggest employers. And we're always chronically um, under, uh, we, we chronically have a job shortage here in Maine. So the thing is, though, that they realize and don't admit that economists research has shown for years that converting to building something like a light rail system to get us out of our cars, Maine really has very little public transportation outside of a couple cities, or clean energy systems, solar, wind, tidal, thermal, building any of those types of things would create thousands of additional jobs here in Maine, um, up to 50% additional jobs. And we're talking good union jobs with benefits that uh, you, know, you could support yourself on. The Economist research shows that actually building weapon systems isn't a very good jobs program, just in terms of how many jobs it generates. So um, I am very pleased to be using a, a new way of organizing here, running a, an electoral campaign. We have had the support of our peace and social justice activists and our Green Party activists across the country. I'm very, very grateful for the support the Green Party has given our campaign. Um, I began as a Green. I was a member of the Green Party, um, but it was impossible to get ballot access uh, as a third party candidate. Gee, I wonder who wrote those rules. So I reluctantly unenrolled from the Green Party, remaining green in my heart and, and my platform did not change and uh, gained ballot access as an independent instead. Um, our campaign has recently really ramped up. We're in the final 44 days here. Um, I was in the first debate we worked very hard to be invited to the debates. And the first debate was September 11th. Um, and um, there was a very good response from people that had been following our campaign. And, but even more exciting, a good response from people who hadn't been following our campaign. Once they saw the debate, the Democrat and Republican traded uh, talking points and attacked each other as their barrage of negative advertising has done all summer long. People are very tired of it. And it's a bad strategy under ranked choice voting because you're, you, you don't want to alienate the followers of other candidates because you would like to have their number two or number three rankings, um, even if you can't get the, the number one ranking of a voter. So, um, and then there's another independent candidate on the ballot who's to the right of Susan Collins, the only man in the race. Um, Maine obviously has a tradition of women in politics. Our current governor is uh, Janet Mills. Um, Senator Margaret Chase Smith was from my uh, hometown in Maine and a family friend who um, made a splash for herself many years ago in the Senate as a freshman Senate Senator, a fresh woman Senator, by giving a speech standing up to the original Joe McCarthy and his red baiting and basically saying, um, go ahead and bully me, threaten to call me a communist. I don't care. Real Americanism means standing up for values like the... Um, freedom to hold an unpopular opinion. And she rocketed to fame on the uh, strength of that speech. It's usually called the Declaration of Conscience. Um, and then in the race, there are three women and one man, 
So in that debate, I was able to sound like the person who wanted to keep a positive issues-based campaign going, talk about policies. Um, I've talked about the Green New Deal tonight because I know this audience would be uh, very interested in that. But of course, uh, Medicare for All is the number one uh, platform plank that I'm running on because in a health crisis, people are finally waking up to the fact that we need single-payer universal health care Yesterday, we were lucky to have Dr. Margaret Flowers join us for a webinar on Medicare for All, single payer, universal, and the fact that it needs to be improved. It needs to cover mental health and dental health and vision and hearing. Um, I know that um, my orientation toward taking care of people and looking out for the children, looking out for families, looking out for workers is shared by the folks here on this call. So I appreciate being invited. I'll just mention one last thing. Sometimes, um, serendipity steps in and some of the decisions that we make have uh, consequences down the road that we didn't foresee. One of them for me is that I wrote this book two years ago with no intention of running for elected office. It's a book about women who I feel that uh, U.S. history has overlooked, but they've really done something notable. Uh, this picture on the, it's called Ever Heard of Her, which could be a slogan for my campaign um, because we're working on name recognition quite a bit. Um, it's, a, it's about nine American women, some living and, and some not, who were really worth knowing about. The picture on the front cover was drawn by a high school girl who's studying graphic design, and she uh, illustrated the book for us, Ruby Feifel. But this person depicted here is the first, uh, is the woman who won the first, bla uh, black woman who won the first gold medal, Olympic gold medal for the US. Do you know her name? Before I started working on this book, I didn't either. It was Alice Coachman. She was a track and field star. Um, so uh, the reason that I took this book off the shelf and got it published right now is I was laying in bed at two in the morning thinking, what is it that people who get elected do? And I realized, oh, they often publish a book. But it's, all, it's usually a kind of a me fest book about how great they are and how great they'd be if they were elected. Um, I was a lot more interested in bringing forward um, women's history, uh, lifting up the voices from some marginalized communities that have been overlooked and, um, you know, uh, being in solidarity with all the women and all the voices because we are the ones who care about the children, the grandchildren, our beautiful planet, our home here. We are the ones who are going to work together and turn around the machine of imperial militarism and um, just treating the earth like it's, um, you know, a garbage dump. Nobody on this call holds those values. I'm very proud to be here with you all, and I will do my best to uphold the values of life over profits. And uh, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Before I let you go, how can people that want to follow your campaign uh, keep in touch with you? Sure. Thank you. Our website is called Lisa for Maine with the four spelled out like the sign behind me. Maine has an E on the end of it, dot org. And you can find us there for news. Um, one of our most popular pieces of campaign merch has been we made Medicare for all condoms. They're branded with Lisa for Maine on one side and Medicare for all on our website on the other. You can order those on, from the store. And um, we really appreciate your support. Thank you so much to all the Greens who've supported our campaign. You know who you are. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure having you. Wish you could stay longer, but I hope your next event tonight goes well. Thank you very much. Be well, everyone. All right, so next up on our live stream is supposed to be Lily. 
Um, but Lily seems to have fallen off the stream also. So <laughs> next up then would be, uh, we'll come back with Lily when she gets back on the stream. Um, but, uh, you know, right now we're going to move on to Jessica Clayton. Welcome to the live stream, Jessica. <laughs> Hi, so nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So take it away. Tell us about your campaign. Okay, so I need to say my official disclaimer. I am uh, a member of the Board of Education in Brick, uh, New Jersey. Uh, but everything I say here, it does not resent, represent the opinion of the Board of Education of Brick, New Jersey. It's just my own opinion. I'm Jessica Clayton, and I am running for re-election this year. I have um, been sitting as a board member for these past three years, and I have been able to accomplish a lot. Uh, we've brought some mindfulness to our schools and um, we worked on diminishing the value of homework and the overall um, point average of the uh, the kids, how it's um, a how it's calculated. I have um, taught, did a lot, the schools have done a lot of work with social emotional skills and I, I hope that my um, assertions on how important those things are um, help to make that become a priority for the school district. And this year, I am running for a, a campaign for fighting for funding because sadly in um, New Jersey, the public school education funding is to um, calculated from the, you know, you get it from the taxes of the um, people in your town. And uh, the state comes in and they help you out uh, with what you can't mass, amass from your local district. Well, they recalculated the way the funding is allocated in this new legislation called S2, and our school district is going to lose $24 million, which is a massive amount of money. So um, I really think it's, it's super important. The state comes up with this 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 number. It's that, that every student we need to spend a certain amount of money on every student in order for us to have to give provide them with an efficient education, a fair and efficient education. Um, but what they're doing in BRIC is taking away our funding. And because of the way that funding is allocated, you can only raise taxes two percent every year. We'll never be able to reach that adequate figure year because we can only raise taxes 2% and we need to get $24 million and we can't raise $24 million in the seven years that they're going to remove this funding from us. So this year, I'm going to use all my skills uh, as an ad, as a um, activist and as an organizer because I have been an activist for the Green Party for some time and fighting for social justice, environmental justice and going to um, women's marches and science marches and environmental marches. And I'm going to use that all and, and or helping to organize the March for um, Peace right here in Tom's River and using all the skills that I've learned as an organizer to try and um, convince the state that it's it's completely unjust, not just for Bricktown, not just for our district, for any district in the entire state. If you don't if you don't have a way to get that number to make um, to raise enough taxes in order to get the efficiency number, then we're mandating unequal education. I mean, if there's a number that they say we should be spending, I think it's like twelve thousand dollars per child a year. If we can't reach that number in any town, then our all of our education systems, our public school education is inherently unequal. And that's not fair. It's not fair in brick and it's not fair anywhere. 
So we should all have the ability to raise enough taxes to provide all of our students with um, the, the efficiency number, um, to meet that number. And because we should all be able to make uh, have, an, uh, have our kids have an equal opportunity. So I hope to convince the state to bring up that, um, you know, make it fair for all of us, and especially us here in Bricktown, because that's where I live, and that's where all of our students go, and that's where I'm, I'm running for the board. Um, and in addition to that, very not fun financial stuff that I'm working on. I'm also encouraging, I'm um, also fighting to get some more um, time outside for our students because I am an early childhood educator, I'm a teacher, and I run a nature play school. And I know how much, how important it is to have kids outside and learning about science and hands-on and in nature. And I would like public school um, education teachers uh, ha to have the, um, the go-ahead from their administration. Yes, we would love for you to teach outside. Yes, we would love to give you the opportunity to have those classes outdoors, especially now that there's a pandemic and it's easier to stay safe outdoors and to lessen, decrease the spread of the um, virus. I'd like to give, um, you know, the administrator, my, my personal, like, go ahead to please get those kids outside as much as you possibly can to educate them out there. I'd like to improve our playgrounds by adding blocks and science materials, STEM materials. These things can be tires and milk crates and wood scraps, um, very low cost things um, that can get kids um, building outside and keeping them excited and um, interested in learning. And I would also like to get elementary school students access right now in uh, our schedules. We have a lot of time allocated for um, the arts and mathematics and um, gym. And we do have some time allocated for science and the history, but in our schedules, it's every other day. So you get to go to science one day and then you get to go to history the next day. And I would like to see the schedules re uh, organized so that they could have science and history every single day. Um, I think both those subjects are very interesting. And I think that mathematics and literacy instruction is so super important. And I don't want to put them on the back burner. I just want to make sure that all the subjects are each equally treated equally and fairly because uh, some kids, everyone's passionate about something different. And if if the kids really passionate about science and they only have it the other day, then they're going to be sad on the days when they don't get access to it. So I want to make sure that everybody has something to look forward to every single day at school. And that's <laughs> that's like the real main push of the campaign. <laughs> I know it's local. It's not the big stuff that the uh, everyone's uh, fighting for on the and the federal and the Senate and and even in the state. But um, all these local issues are important to kids. And I think that if every school district um, you know, took on some of these uh, um, strategies that they could really improve the lives of kids at school. Do you have a campaign page set up for people that want to follow I you or give you do. money? I do. Um, and I will say that it's like the most awkward website in the universe. I really should pay for something like Jessica Clayton for BOE, but I don't have one. So I'm going to send it to my Facebook page. And then from there, you can find my website. And my donate uh, link is right pinned right to the top. So my Facebook page is at facebook.com slash jclaytonboe. All right. Thank you so much. And thank I see you. we did have a question that's going to come in specifically for you later when we get to the panel questions. There's a question just for you that just came in. So Thanks. <laughs> stick around for her answers to that. It looks like Lily is back now. So I'm just going to 
pop Jessica off and add Lily to the stream. Uh, welcome to the stream, Lily. Uh, hello. Thank you, Heather, and everybody in Madeline for doing this. I'm sure. from Colombia. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. And I've been living in the United States for almost 30 years. I currently work, not work, volunteer with Mutual Aid, with Mutual Morris, which is a mutual aid group uh, in Morris County. And we um, provide groceries for families weekly in Morris County. Um, approximately, we have 400 families, 400 plus, and other um, items, other essential items that they might need. And we try to help them get other resources as needed. Yes, uh, and I'm a green. I'm from the Green Party. So you want me to... Yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what you're, you were going to talk a little bit about Colombia, I think, tonight as well, okay. right? That yes. The situation that's yes. going on in Colombia and your activism. Okay. Um, Colombia has a long history of violence. Um, there's been a conflict for over 60 years. All The conflict is between uh, guerrillas and paramilitaries, uh, drug traffickers, and even the army. There's a lot of uh, families in the middle of this conflict that Colombia was the second country in the world with the most displaced internally, uh, people displaced internally and, um, two years ago, and it's the fourth in the world. Because of all this conflict, women have been greatly affected by um, being abused, uh, kidnapped, raped, killed and used for the for all these insurgent groups uh, and they don't have any protection and they don't really have access to health care um, what else can I say about Colombia Colombia right now is having a hard time last year uh, rallies not rallies but big massive protests starting going on the streets. Uh, in big numbers like never before, and mostly are young people and students that cannot stand this way of living anymore. And just last week or so, uh, the policemen in Bogota just went against um, the protesters with all its force and they killed 14 people. They are mostly students. The president right now is... Uh, Ivan Duque is um, the continuation of Uribe, and Uribe has been known for uh, his narco uh, administration, his links with the military, paramilitaries, and, and he's been investigated now. Uh, he's been investigated for many, many years, but they always put it on the side, and they have never really brought charges to him. Now uh, there's a little hope because they, he's in house arrest, but he's doing all these kind of tricks to get out of that. And uh, that's how um, I met Madeline because she's done uh, work in Colombia with some activist groups there uh, for peace. We we need help. We need help there. We need uh, we need. Uh, help from here, people um, 
speaking up and 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 asking um, the government here to to help us. So, what can people actually do if they want to get involved and try to help? Um, first, to get informed on the whole situation there, and then uh, uh, there's been petitions and letters to congressmen and um, Madeline. Um, she she has more information on that because she's been working with groups there. I I I haven't really participated in that that much except recently. All the activism the activism that I've done has been here mostly. I I I've been an activist activist since um, 2003 for immigrant rights. And uh, I started in New Hampshire when I started realizing that uh, many immigrants had the same issues that I had. And I didn't know, I really didn't know my rights until I met uh, these wonderful people that started uh, teaching me all these things. And and, and now uh, with the work that we do here in Morris County, I have a good relationship with the families and they go to so much struggles, uh, not just economically, but in every aspect, uh, housing and education for the children. And and uh, that's why I, I, I keep doing this work. Uh, when I came here, I had, I had, I had all these, these, these issues and I had to do it alone. And one thing that has affected women in in, um, in Colombia, well, as I said before, they've been abused and killed and kidnapped and, and all that. But for me personally is that I risked my life and my two oldest daughters to come here to keep them safe uh, and, and as many others. Uh, so that's, that's how, in many years that I didn't go to Colombia, we didn't really feel safe to go in there. So we have lost uh, a lot of our um, our relationship with our culture, not our culture, but with our uh, our hometown and our friends, old friends and relatives because of all the years that we've been distant. Yeah, that must be heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. We are. We did get a few questions that have come in for you later when we get to the panel section. There's a couple of questions, so uh, I'm going to let you go now and go to the next lady on our list. But thank you so much for everything thank you. you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. And next up on our list is Margaret Flowers. Where's Margaret here in my stream? There you are. <laughs> hey, Margaret. Looks like you're on mute. Right. Thank you. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Heather. And thank you, Madeline, for inviting me to be part of this amazing event tonight and to be with all of you amazing and strong women. Um, just for people who don't know me, I'm a former co-chair of the National Green Party. I just completed my term this past summer. I ran for U.S. Senate in the state of Maryland in 2016. I am a pediatrician by training, but I'm an activist right now, and I've run uh, popularresistance.org 
and I have a podcast called Clearing the Fog. And at Popular Resistance, we are a daily movement news website that provides information about resistance that's happening in the United States and around the world, about new systems that people are creating to try to create the kind of world that we would like to live in. We provide information about strategy and organizing and a lot of just education to cut through the misinformation that we see so often in the corporate media. And two issues that are really, I mean, we work on a broad range of issues, but two issues that are just really important to me as a physician, National Improved Medicare for All is very important. And I, um, I'm part of the Physicians for a National Health Program, and I've been very active on this issue for a number of decades. And I think that, you know, as I think it was, um, Lisa, who said, or one of the previous speakers who said that, you know, the COVID pandemic has just completely exposed how much of a failure our healthcare system is. And it's something that we have been warning about for a long time, that if you treat healthcare as a commodity, it doesn't have the ability to respond when you have these crises. And on top of that, there's just been a real gutting of our public health infrastructure in the United States. So if we look at the countries around the world that responded well to the pandemic, they had a universal health system, a national system, where they were able to coordinate and get health professionals and supplies where they were needed, where they were able to provide accurate information quickly, there, and, and they were able to just really get on it and test people and isolate them and stop the spread. And, and as bad as our healthcare system is, I couldn't have imagined that we would have such a bad uh, you know, approach to, the, to this pandemic, just a complete failure. And, and who's, you know, suffering from this the most? Of course, it's the populations that have been, you know, are the most vulnerable and are subject to, you know, systemic racism. So we're seeing for a, a broad range of reasons, more illness in black and brown communities, more severe disease and more deaths. And so this is something that, you know, right now there's so much talk about racism and the police violence, but racism in health is also a huge issue. And in fact, we recently put together a tool, a presentation with a sample script and a guidebook that people can use to start having this discussion and a deeper understanding of how racism impacts health in the United States and why we need a healthcare system that will start to take steps to dismantle that and to start to repair and heal this, you know, huge disparities that we have. Another issue that's really important to me is peace. And I know that's something that's important to Madeline as well. And, um, you know, there's, again, the United States is, as an imperialist country, is just, um, uh, you know, using the same tactics over and over. You know, we go after countries because we want their resources. We want to dominate their governments so that our corporations can benefit from their resources. And we use the same tactics over and over again. So once you start to understand, you know, what those tactics are, then you can recognize them when they're happening. Another thing that's important for people to understand is that our current national security strategy is great power conflict. So it used to be the war on terror, but that ended towards the end of Obama's administration and switched to great power conflict. So that means conflict with Russia and China and countries like Iran as well. And so when you see all of this Russia bashing and China bashing, uh, lies being told about both countries, same about Iran. I was able to travel to Iran last year on a peace delegation and see from my eyes that what we're told here is the opposite of what's actually happening there. So, um, 
so it's important for us to recognize when we hear in the media these stories, you know, to say, oh, gee, what is the U.S.'s foreign policy towards that country? And could this actually be something that's serving that foreign policy? And and particularly with China, there's so much uh, racism being stoked right now towards China as the U.S. is really aggressing and we are we're actually in a new cold war with china but also latin america you know the three countries that are highly targeted they call them the the troika of tyranny which is a complete lie is venezuela nicaragua and cuba and so um last year i was able to fortunately with a group you know many other people and, and a lot of new jersey greens and other folks from the green party uh, came down and supported that effort was to protect the venezuelan embassy when the united states was attempting a coup in venezuela and was handing over diplomatic properties to the person that they wanted to install in power even though that person had not won was not in power it was nobody really in that country and had no legitimacy they were handing over assets and diplomatic properties to this person and so we were able to protect the venezuelan embassy in washington dc for 37 days and prevent the U.S. from putting those that person's you know chosen ambassadors into that embassy, and that embassy continues to be empty today. Uh, the U.S. continues to aggress towards Venezuela. In fact, they just uh, were able to stop another effort of sabotage. Um, the U.S. is using mercenaries and CIA agents and others to come into the country and try to sabotage their infrastructure, infrastructure, create chaos. And uh, there's a huge misinformation campaign going on right now towards Venezuela, including even at the United Nations level, uh, the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights issued a report that didn't, the, the people who wrote the report didn't even go to Venezuela to investigate. They talked to the kind of Venezuelan oligarchs who are outside of the country who would like to have a coup in that country and use their information, the lies that they told to write a report about Venezuela. So if you go to popularresistance.org, um, you'll find information about all of these issues. You can search for information and you'll find a, a variety of articles. And so I really encourage people to, I'm sure you are informed, but just think of popular resistance as another resource that you can use to get the information you need so we can cut through these lies and, uh, to expose them and to demand uh, the things that we need and to demand a more cooperative foreign policy, a more diplomatic and peaceful foreign policy. One thing we're seeing around the world with the COVID pandemic and the recession is countries are really coming together. Uh, they're working together, they're supporting each other, they're providing resources and health professionals to each other. But the United States, in fact, instead, is dropping out of the World Health Organization, is not cooperating. In fact, we're escalating our aggression, escalating our economic war against many countries who are struggling to deal with the pandemic. And so this is really the opposite of what we need to see. And we need, as you know, our, our country is losing its stature in the world, will no longer be a superpower. Um, we really need to define what are what is the future of the United States going to be. And we need to put forward that vision of what we could be as a, as a collaborative member of the global community and a cooperative member. So I don't know if I've been talking too long, Heather, <laughs> but um, you know, I look forward to, um, to, to this event with you and to answering your questions afterwards. Yeah, I've seen a few questions that have come in for you as well. So it's good to see questions are coming in for everyone. We have two amazing women left that we were going to talk to before we uh, open it up to questions for everyone. And next up on our list is Hafsa Habay. And there you are. Welcome to the stream, Hafsa. Hi, Heather. Can you hear me well? 
Yep, I can hear you. You sound good. All right. Hello, everybody. I want to thank Heather and Madeline for organizing this. I'm so honored to be on a panel like this one. Uh, my name is Hafsa Habba. I'm a Palestinian American, and I'm here to spread awareness and the support and to support the Palestinian movement. I started my, my activism when I was young. As a Palestinian, you know, you're born with the fight for Palestine. Um, I started my formal activism when I was in college. Um, I was in uh, Rutgers, Newark, uh, Students for Justice in Palestine. So I did that at a college level until my college career was over. Um, and then when I graduated, I joined the New Jersey chapter of American Muslims for Palestine, where I am right now. Um, and we organize on a state level. I also have to add, of course, that my words uh, and everything that I say today do not um, represent American Muslims for Palestine or the New Jersey chapter. These are thoughts of my own and, um, of course, uh, research I've done. So uh, I want to just start with, uh, you know, the current situation of Palestine that's going on right now, um, as we should all be aware. In January of this year, Trump formally introduced the deal of the century with Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel. An important thing to know is that they did not include any uh, Palestinians in this negotiation. This deal was a way for Israel to occupy another 30 percent of the West Bank. So I'm going to ask Heather if we can share an image that I shared earlier. OK, there it is. So if you take a look at this area, um, this doesn't show the whole country, but it shows the West Bank in the dashed lines with the pink around it. So if we see area A is the dark green, area B is the lighter green, area C is the light pink, and area the area that has been recently annexed in 2017 when Trump recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel is the dark pink. So that's just for context so we can understand what, what I'm talking about when, when I discuss the West Bank. So Area A and Area B are technically under, you know, Palestinian authority. But, of course, if you see it, if you look closely, you'll see the patches between them. Now, Palestinians in the West Bank are subject to a complex system of control, including the physical barrier, the checkpoints and the roadblocks, and the, the barriers like permits, closure of areas which restrict the right to freedom of movement. So if they wanted to reach from one point, they wanted to reach from Ramallah, which is uh, highlighted to the top of the West Bank, they would have to go through each of the borders and the barriers and checkpoints that are between all of those um, islands. So for area A and B, that's the situation. For area C, over 60% of the West Bank is considered area C, where Israel retains near exclusive control, including over law enforcement, planning and construction. Most of area C has been allocated for the benefit of the Israeli settlements or the Israeli military at the expense of the Palestinian communities. So when we talk about the current events, uh, the deal of the century was meant to annex everything. Right. So the whole West Bank, everything in the dashed lines, including areas A and B, would be annexed and would uh, be officially under Israeli authority. Now, this is something that they've been playing for a very long time. You know, they highball, um, you know, they say we want the whole thing and then they make you settle with whatever's left over. So they've been saying this for years, you know, the areas in the pink. If when they talk about the West Bank being under Palestinian authority, they make it seem like it's everything in the pink, dark green and light green. 
But when you look at the, the different areas, you know, you'll see the actual situation. So this deal gave, would give the, it would give Israel the green light to illegally and unilaterally, unilaterally annex as much as 30% of the West Bank outside of the framework of negotiations. Um, so again, we mentioned that there was no negotiations with the Palestinian authorities uh, when it came to creating this deal. So we can uh, take that off of the screen. Thank you, Heather. But so when we talk about recent recent events, something important to mention is how uh, in 2018, Trump cut the funds of UNRWA and UNRWA, whoever's not aware, includes uh, UNRWA's work includes the education, uh, crisis relief, and most importantly, health services. So Palestine's hospital has stopped taking uh, non-COVID patients during this time of the pandemic. Their electricity has cut, is cut to um, randomly selected four hours every day. So you never really know when the electricity is going to be on. They have no clean water. And um, in the middle of a pandemic where they have no hospitals, they have only 100 respirators for millions of people. Sanitation is more important uh, now more than ever. Um, so UNRWA's work has been jeopardized. In the middle of the pandemic, the Trump administration's decision to terminate all humanitarian assistance to the Palestinian refugees, including $360 million for UNRWA and $250 million in related U.S. aid programs. So when you mention it to our congresspeople, just recently we were talking in our Palestine Advocacy Day in the past week, we, when we bring it up to our congresspeople, they say things like, oh, we have to focus on America during this time in the pandemic. Yet, we're giving Israel $3.8 billion annually um, in military aid just so they can make the situation worse. It, some things just don't add up. So, so more recently, in August, the Israeli uh, military started bombing Gaza uh, on August 6th. And just a few days later, they, they announced their peace deal to normalize relationships with the UAE, right? And again, also, um, Bahrain was added to the deal a few a few weeks or yeah a few weeks later, and it was officially signed on September fifteenth. So now the claim is that Israel is suspending the plans to pursue the annexation in exchange for these deals. But Netanyahu, uh, the prime minister, turned right back around and he said that this won't stop until the pers uh, the pursuit for annexation won't stop until they've taken the whole thing. So regardless of whether or not Israel uh, formally annexes additional Palestinian land in the West Bank, Israel's de facto annexation of the Palestinian land continues on a daily basis through its illegal colonization, home demolitions, and forced displacement of the Palestinians, which of course we know has been going on since 1948. So when you bring up these topics, you bring up this the issue going on right now in Palestine, Everybody always says, oh, what can we do to help? So, of course, right now we believe that all people, you know, have the right to democracy. We have the right to self-determination. We have free, we should be entitled to our human rights. So at this point, we have no, no choice but to be active. So as activists, as we should announce ourselves, we can support the movement by being active socially. You know, we can raise awareness of the situation, um, especially because there's no one really showing how tough the situation really is. So, you know, we raise awareness, we tell our families, we tell our friends, and, you know, we spread as much word as we can. 
So we can also support organizations financially or even like uh, attending events and joining the teams for organizations like oh a- like AMP, where our whole mission is to advocate for the, for Palestine on a political level. Most importantly, we need to advocate politically. Our efforts as constituents, as humans in this country, can go a very long way. Recent legislation proposed in the House of Representatives is a very large step taken by uh, Representative Betty McCollum of Minnesota. She introduced the House Resolution uh, 2407, which is titled Human Rights for Palestinian Children Living Under uh, Israeli Military Occupation Act. So this bill uh, would prevent the U.S. foreign military aid financing, U.S. foreign military financing from being used by Israel to military detain, militarily detain, interrogate, abuse, or impose ill treatment upon children in violation of international law. So uh, we're already aware that they've been committing human rights violations and violations of international law for years. Uh, so this this bill 2407 is just holding them accountable with the money that we're funding them, $3.8 billion a year. Uh, I mean, $3.8 billion annually, excuse me. Um, she, she also introduced uh, the bill uh, House, House Resolution 8050, which is titled the Israeli, is, Israeli Annexation Non-Recognition Act. This legislation would prohibit U.S. recognition of Israeli annexation of Palestinian land in the West Bank, and it would cut off all forms of U.S. funding to Israel used directly or indirectly to support the annexation. Recently, when when the the announcement to annex came out, so many representatives, so many senators came out, said a whole lot of words. And, you know, when you bring this to their attention, they say something like, oh, I'll have to look into it. Oh, I'll, um, I can't support that uh, because of the financial aspect. But those are things that those are one of the only things that we can hold them accountable with. What, what else are we supposed to hold them accountable with if they break uh, international law? They, they violate human rights uh, on the daily and we still haven't held them accountable. So, so as, as I mentioned, they'll say something like, um, we uh, need to focus on what's going on with us right now. So knowing this, you know, these officials won't do something like this on their own. They won't sign on to something on their own. Um, so they need your encouragement. They need your support. You know, if they do something, this is technically considered controversial. So they want to know, uh, are my constituents on my side? Will they vote for me again if I do this? So it's all about, it's all about that at the end of the day. So as the saying goes, you know, all, all politics are local. Um, so take your thoughts about all of these issues, whether it be mass incarceration, police brutality, um, the situation of Palestine. Take them all to your congresspeople and your, your elected officials and find out what, what can they do to support. Do your research or bring it to them. Show them, show them the facts and show, show them the statistics. So we can start with stopping the police-military relationships with IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. Uh, we can stop the local police officers from training with the Israeli military. They're known to commit the human rights violations on the daily. And they're bringing that back to our hometowns. So we need to stop sending our tax dollars to Israel. Uh, our $3.8 billion a year can go to um, our education system instead of letting them purchase fighter jets and assault weapons. They, the money can go to homelessness, where the, the number of homeless people is rising every single month. Again, the change starts local, you know, and it starts with us. Um, that's, that's all I have to say. 
All right. Thank you so much for all of that and really educating people. And we got a couple of questions for you too. And uh, just before I let you go, Madeline said she's going to advocate for all of this as a senator. All right. This brings us to our last, but certainly not least, um, amazing woman. She's another W name like me. So I understand being at the end of the alphabet like her. You look like you have yourself on mute, Angela. Uh, You want to unmute yourself real quick? There's no idea around here. (laughs) Welcome to the live stream, Angela Walker. Hey, um, first off, thank y'all, you know, both you and Madeline for having me. Thank you for the invitation. Um, Thank you to the other folks on this panel. I've been, you know, listening the entire time. Y'all are stellar. And that's that's putting it very, very mildly. I mean, y'all are amazing. And I'm honored to be among you. Um, Yeah, my name is Angela Walker. I am the Green Party vice presidential nominee. I um, live here in Florence, South Carolina. I am still a dump truck driver every day. So you talking about a working class candidate that that's pretty much it. And in this, as we were listening, you know, at the top of the show, we talked to, you know, Dr. Stein talked about um, the suffragettes. And I just want to lift up Ida Wells Barnett and the other sisters who had to fight for the respect for black women to have the right to vote. The suffragettes, you know, weren't, they were people of their time. And the, um, the fight for us to, to actually be able to, to realize the vote was a big deal. So I want to lift them up and, you know, make sure that, you know, we, we have, have them in the room. And all right, when we're talking about issues, uh, yeah, we have, this is, I've been calling 2020 the year of impossible things, because if you had said five, six years ago that 2020 would see the intersection of a global pandemic, rebellions around the country, absolute ineptitude in, in, in places where there are supposed to be at least nominal leadership, absolute ineptitude. And, you know, overarching all of this, the West Coast is on fire. The Arctic is 100 degrees. We've got a lot going on. And I think that this year, more than any other year, as has been mentioned before by, by the other stellar folks who spoke, this pandemic has made it absolutely impossible for, for a lot of segments of this pop, you know, a lot of segments of this population who have been able to ignore, you know, the effects of state-sponsored violence, which includes poverty, as Dr. Flowers alluded to. Poverty is violence. And the way that it affects marginalized communities, now no one can act like they don't see it. And people who have previously not been as affected are now questioning capitalism finally, are now questioning why is there a duopoly? Why do I not have a choice? As y'all know, you know, our, our party was pushed off the ballot in my 
home state of Wisconsin. I'm being good. I'm being real good. That ain't what I want to say. Pushed off the ballot in Wisconsin and also in Pennsylvania. When we're talking, we're looking at, you know, talking about what is a democracy and questioning what does that even mean in a country where if you are part of a smaller independent party, you literally do not get to have a voice with the people. You don't get big media access, as Madeline was talking about earlier. You don't get access to the debates. You don't get these things. I need people to understand, or I think it's important that people understand that it isn't for a lack of trying. The Green Party does. We we are doing everything that we know how to do with the means that we have. But understand, this is intentional. You know, this is... This is not, oh, you know, they just don't know about you. Oh, they absolutely do know. And so one of the things that encourages me is that people don't do this stuff unless they're afraid of you, unless you're a threat. If we were as insignificant as they like to say, then why are you doing all of this? We know why you're doing it. You are afraid of us. We are offering a full strength, not gutted, not compromised, not half measured, Green New Deal, eco-socialist Green New Deal. We are offering full strength Medicare for all. We are offering the only party platform that is talking about nuclear de-escalation, community control of the police, the end of aggression in countries around the world, defunding the military by 75%, bringing those monies home and reinvesting in infrastructure with the money and the personnel. When no one else is talking about that. No one else is talking about nuclear de-escalation and disarmament. No one is talking about reversing climate change now, basically. We don't have till 2050. The Arctic was 100 degrees. I mean, come on. The West Coast is burning. We don't have time to be kicking the can down the road. And so when we're talking about these issues with people, I think it's important that folks know that this urgency is very real. I have grandchildren. I have a bunch of them. <laughs> you know, I'm a worker. I am someone who climate change affects my ability to work, but also as someone who loves this planet and her non-human life and her natural resources, making that connection to capitalist exploitation of this planet Connecting that to the capitalist exploitation of people, for me, is absolutely essential. And so I think that the issues that we're raising this year, no one else is raising. And no matter what happens in November, I think it's important that people know we're not going anywhere. And with these attacks that are coming, do your best, baby. You know, let them do what they do. I mean, if you, like I said, if you weren't a threat, they wouldn't bother you. So we know what we're advocating for. We know why people want to choose the Green Party, why people are looking, who are looking for, you know, a place to do their organizing work or meet and connect with people who are organizing around issues that are core for them, why the Green Party is that party. And so You know, I'm not going to talk all night and I've probably gone all over the board, but we um, 
I think it's just very crucial that we realize we're not wrong. We have every right to stand up, keep standing up, dig your heels in. We know what we're fighting. And the fact that we want not just a habitable planet, but a thriving one. She deserves better than this. The fact that we want human beings to be treated fairly and not just within these borders, but all around the world. Those things are not wrong and we are not naive or idealistic for wanting them. So that's what I got. All right. Thank you so much. Um, oh, I, we are. Uh, I think Madeline did want to pop back on. Her internet's really in and out here, so I'm going to add you back to the stream while we still have you because I know you wanted to say something else, uh, Madeline. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to say how um, I've been listening to the whole program and making comments whenever I could. I feel, you know, I wish I could be on the screen or in the in the studio for the whole time but something's up with my internet i am just so um pleased to hear from all of these activists and candidates and to talk about how and, and everyone's presentation seems to link to the next person's presentation and it's just this was what i had in mind when we put this program together and it it's exceeded what I what I'd hoped for. You know, we hear uh, about US foreign policy in Latin America and in the Middle East. And there are parallels there with what our government is doing, what the US government is doing, and what we need to do to, to try to prevent it. And then we also are talking about what we need to do with the money that would be saved if we stopped these wars. And I, you know, it's exciting to see how we all agree on on this, whether it's education or healthcare. Uh, those, both areas need an influx of a lot of money in order to be to to work properly. And then, of course, the Medicare for all, improved and expanded Medicare Medicare for all, and climate change, addressing the issues of climate change. We will not stop climate change unless we stop the wars. And I, I'm just so excited to hear all of us women saying something very much like that, but coming at it from different angles. And that's that was the purpose behind pulling everyone together. So I'm glad, I, I hope I can stay on for a while before I gum up the works again. If I gum up the works with my in, unstable internet, I'll, be, I'll back off, but I look forward to the to the questions and answers, because I think there were a whole host of questions being generated while you all were talking and providing such important uh, perspective and information about what's happening in this country and the world today. So now I'll sit back and maybe someone has a question for me, but if not, I'm only too happy to have the <laughs> questions addressed to everyone else who is here on the Before show. Before we do hop into the questions though, we have one more person that submitted a video for us. Um, and I would like to share that now. Another woman who really wanted to be here with us, but unfortunately also had another commitment tonight. Franca Mueller-Paz. Hi everybody. Thank you so much for joining in this powerful event about lifting up the voices of women in politics. My name is Franca Mueller-Paz. 
I'm a teacher. I've been teaching for 10 years in public schools. I'm a teacher in, in Baltimore City. And something that's really important to think about when it comes to women in politics is that we're often not the ones that are thinking growing up from when we're little girls that we're going to run for office. Oftentimes, it's our community that calls on us to do it. So I think it's really important for all the women that are out there that are hearing this video for you to see your capacity and your ability to be a leader in your community. Uh, know that your community trusts you. Know that your community wants to embrace you and see your leadership. And something that happens all the time with women is that they think, oh, it's not me. You know, I have other, you know, really important work going on. But we need your leadership. We need your voices. We need to see women of color, especially uh, at the tables of power, making these decisions. We are experts of the lives that we lead. No one knows what it's like to be a woman of color but us. So it's important for us to be at those decision-making tables to make sure that when uh, important bills are being signed, when legislation is being discussed, that the impact that it's gonna have on us and our sisters is gonna be reflected in those politics. So thank you so much for joining in. Again, my name is Franca Miller-Paz from Baltimore. You can learn more about me at francaforthepeople.com. And I hope you'll do your part in making sure that we support women in this election cycle. All right. And now we're back to everyone. It looks like, unfortunately, we did lose Madeline again um, while that video was playing. But we have a bunch of questions that have been submitted. And since Angela went last before, I'm going to go to her first with the first question. And this one is for me because <laughs> I'm hosting, so I can ask the question. You told me about a year and a half ago that you were not going to run for office again. So what inspired you to make that change and jump back into the ring? You know what? Uh, this time I really mean it. This is my electoral politics swan song. I'm trying to tell y'all. Anybody ask me about 2024, I'm going to be rude to you. So just this, you heard it now. Um, this will not happen again. Yeah, I remember we had that discussion. And I, I think because this is the year of impossible things, I had been stewing, stewing, because my community is not here. My activist community, I'm not native to Florence, South Carolina. My people are in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And so I'm, I'm real mad at them right now. I was stewing. You have this pandemic, which is being handled in the most, as, as you said, Hafsa, ineptitude is, is not strong enough. You're absolutely right. And because we're live streaming this, I couldn't say it the way I would say it if we wasn't on here, but you know what I mean. The way that this pandemic is being handled, the fact that climate change is being ignored. The fact that so many people are in so much distress and it is so fixable, it is so unnecessary, this was so avoidable. I had been stewing for weeks, like, like nuclear angry. And evidently that energy went out into the universe and my ancestors got together and said, okay, you're ready. And um, I got a call from Howie Hawkins and I looked over at my ancestor altar and I said, really, y'all really, we really doing this? So here I am. Um, I think that, you know, I've been prepared for this. I think I have enough righteous indignation to fuel a small city. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think that that's what's needed. This duopoly, these folks who are, 
you know, sitting, the fact that you can have a speaker of the house do a, like a, a give people a, a tour of her refrigerator and how much ice cream she has, who even does that? If that's not some let them eat cake, then what is it? Who even does that? When people are like literally losing their homes and suffering and wondering about food insecurity or whether, you know, is it okay for me to send my kids to school? That's all not. So here I am. I'm for one, I'm really glad you're here and I'm glad your ancestors told you to be, they are wise ancestors. All right, uh, I'm gonna go to one that's really for anyone that wants to jump in. Question is, can you name some activist who really inspired you? I do. Oh, okay. Um, when I said that I started becoming an activist in 2003, because I met someone that is incredibly awesome. His name is Arnie Alpert and he worked for American Friends for 40 years. Uh, he's just retired now, but he's, he's an amazing activist. Uh, and everything I learned uh, was because of him. Thank you. Okay. All right, let's go to one that was submitted for Hafsa. How have you seen the U.S.-Palestinian policy changed through different presidential administrations. Has it really kind of just been the same all along, or has there been ups and downs? Um, so uh, thank you to whoever uh, directed that question to me. Um, I, I don't think, um, and I might be wrong, I don't think that there has ever been a down with the Israeli-American uh, relationship. I think that it's been, um, since it started, I think it was uh, World War II. You know, we've been uh, funding them for a very long time. Since then, we've had uh, $142.3 billion altogether. So I think that the relationship started simple with like reparations and everything because of the Holocaust, which is unfortunate, honestly, because, you know, they were just uh, draining the money and a lot of people who actually were part of the Holocaust did not receive those reparations because it was directly directly to Israel. But I might be uh, speaking incorrectly if anybody would like to uh, correct me. But yeah, since then it's been, they've been adding to the relationships, you know, Kennedy started the uh, security relationship and every, ever since then it's been um, uphill. I hope that answered the question. <laughs> yeah, I think it did for sure. We're going to go to another one that's just for anybody that wants to jump in. We got a lot of questions submitted talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to kind of combine those into a couple of questions. The first of one, first of which is, we're facing what could be a highly biased Supreme Court for decades. What can be done to create a more functional court that actually serves the people? Because they've been pretty pro-corporate the entire time, no matter who was on the Supreme Court. So what kind of things can we do to actually change that court? I can jump in if, if no one else wants to take it right now. You know, it's interesting. Because, you know, whenever there's an election and we have the choice of the corporate, you know, terrible evils and, um, you know, and people are always like, this is the most important election and it's about the Supreme Court. And we have to realize that both Republicans and Democrats have nominated corporate lawyers to the Supreme Court and that's, you know, who they represent. But 
courts do respond to public opinion. So the most important thing that we can do, we want to impact the Supreme Court, is to impact public opinion and raise awareness and raise a stink and make it politically unpalatable for them to make the decisions that go against what the majority of people in the United States clearly want. It always comes down to popular power. In this corporate political system, we can't have any illusion that we're going to elect our way out of this. As you saw, Hafsa said, things have not changed with the, you know, our support for this, you know, Israeli apartheid and colonial regime and, and, you know, and on so many issues, that's, that's what it is. And so now more than ever, we have to really unite. People on the left need to unite and with a clear vision and a clear agenda of what it is that we're fighting for and a militancy and a willingness to go out there into the streets and fight for it. That The, the crises that we're facing are not going to be addressed until the people in the United States understand this and rise up because what we're facing is um, an alternative that is a very scary one because those that have the resources and the power right now do not have our interests in mind. So I'll stop there. Anyone else want to jump in on that one? Go ahead, Angela. Term limits. I think there is a complacency that happens or that comes when you have a lack of urgency, when you know that you're going to be in this office essentially until you're not that you can't be removed, that, you know, somebody who is more in line with what people actually want can bump you out of there because you're not listening to us anymore. I think there's a complacency, Clarence Thomas. I think that, um, I can't stand him. I think that I'd tell him that to his face too, but I think that there's a, a complacency that happens. And I think folks are a little bit more willing to be flexible, to be available when they know that that little purse that they're on can be snatched out from under them. So they need term limits. Right, that's a good question. Let's see, we have one for Jessica. Uh, You talked about the new funding formulas. How politically motivated are those new funding formulas? Well, I think part of the motivation for the funding uh, formulas is that in it's there's such a disparity between the different districts on how who gets the funding and who doesn't and what happened was for so long the districts who weren't getting any state funding were like you need to reevaluate the system that figures out how much money each uh town gets or each public school district gets that those um those low funded districts fought and stood up and made a lot of noise and then they de- redid the system. And now it's the opposite districts who maybe they considered to be overfunded before who are now paying the price because there's just not enough money allocated for education in New Jersey. There's just not enough money for them to fully fund all the districts. I mean, it's really not fair. There shouldn't be some kids who have the money and then we swip the funding formula and now they don't have the money. The money doesn't have it anymore. It's just, it shouldn't be, it should be equitable. We should all have, all of the kids should have access. If they have a, a number that says, you know, 12, thousand dollars a year the kid you need to provide uh, an equitable education to the kids then we should all be able to provide that at least that amount but what what happens is that some districts who have a higher tax base 
they spend forty thousand a year per child, and other ki- districts spend eight. And then those districts who have such a little amount, they only have $8,000 to spend on each kid. They're not getting an equitable education to those kids who are are getting $40,000 a year per student. I mean, that's, you know, inevitable because the funding formula is not fair. And now there was a there was a plan to give every kid the same amount of money. And that's not fair either, because every individual student needs a different uh, for like has different services that they need. Some kids need, you know, special needs services. Some kids need, you know, guidance counselors, extra social services. We all need different things. We're all different human beings. We all need different services. So we need to figure out what um, each student needs and be able to provide it for them equitably all across the state um, because that's what makes it fair. Now, whether it's politically motivated or not, I don't know. I think what happens is, is that people make noise in one district and then it flips and then those kids don't have the money anymore. And then we have to figure out how to make it so that we all we all have an equitable access to to the fun, the funding that we need in order to, to give the kids an equal opportunity for education. All right. Thanks for that, Jessica. Um, we're going to go back to another one that can be for anyone. And this is a good one. Be, what advantages or disadvantages have you had as a woman, either in politics or in activism? Has it helped you? Has it hurt you? Who wants to take that one? I mean, I'll I'll say something quickly. I mean, uh, for me and um, organizations that I've worked in personally, we kind of like uh, encourage the work of women in the in the activism. So I think that I'm blessed to be working with an organization like this. I, I, in my work in, um, in Rutgers, you know, uh, I've seen, um, people who just don't even accept or consider, uh, communications coming from women, you know, and I, I think that, there's uh and because i'm young obviously i haven't experienced it on a higher level and i know that uh the people on this panel can obviously speak to that you know the the uh inequality that we can face but i mean me personally i think that um i've had an advantage i would say i I could um speak to that if you don't mind i um i still have young kids my kids are uh 10 and 8 right now and uh, I have to deal with childcare when you know I'm serving on the board I have to get to meetings and I have to always you know juggle who's going to watch the kids uh, who's going to be available I mean when you are are having to get to all these things the COVID is is kind of an advantage in some ways because everything's on zoom now so even right now my kids are in bed um, so I get to be here watching them and and still participating in this but when it's a board meeting I have to arrange for a babysitter because um, I don't have someone here at night to watch the kids and that's something that I think that not all men have to think about when they take office that they have, um, you know, if they're a single parent or, or um, if they are not the one responsible for taking care of the kids every night, they may not have to juggle a babysitter when they need to make a meeting. All right. Next up, we have one for Margaret. We hear a lot about Trump and his foreign policy. And this was from Craig. I'm actually very alarmed about <laughs> Biden's plans in Latin America. Can you inform us of what we need to know about his platform in regards to Latin America? Oh, gosh. Craig, that's a great question. But to be honest, I have not been following uh, Biden's platform that closely. I'm sure that I don't. I mean, 
he doesn't support Medicare for all. I know that. Um, but in terms of, you know, so 20, 2015 under the Obama-Biden administration was when they declared that Venezuela was a national security threat. And that was based on nothing, literally nothing. And that was what caused the flight of investment capital from Venezuela. And then after that, you know, economic uh, measures were imposed by the United States. I don't like to call them sanctions because sanctions are actually uh, what happens when there's a legal process and the country is then punished with sanctions. What the United States is doing with all of these so-called sanctions or coercive measures on countries is completely illegal. It violates the UN Char Charter and international law, uh, but it's basically in Venezuela, it's causing them to not be able to get the things that they need to be able to purchase medications or even the things that used to have a thriving pharmaceutical industry and they had a high per capita amount of medications for their population, but they can't get the precursors to keep those industries running. So now they have severe shortages of medication. They have severe shortages of equipment to keep their refineries running, their water pumps running, their, uh, even the elevators in the hotels, you know, they keep one or two elevators running and the others they keep for spare parts so that they always have at least, you know, one elevator running. You know, this is, this is what people are living in. And Biden has been, you know, just as bad as everybody else in terms of, of you know, putting forth these lies about the leaders of these countries. And it and it's in, you know, Nicaragua, Cuba and Venezuela. What do they all have in common? The Cuban Revolution, the Sandinista Revolution or the Bolivarian Revolution, right? They have all challenged successfully U.S. imperialism. And that's why they're targets. And Biden is going to be part of that, too. We have to recognize that right now there's the largest military presence in since the you know 30 years surrounding Venezuela, U.S. military surrounding Venezuela as well as having troops inside Colombia, as well as terrorist cells inside Colombia, planning attacks against the Venezuelan people. So uh, that's not going to change under President, uh, you know, if there's a President Biden. And, you know, and this one-upsmanship that they're doing against China, Trump and Biden is very scary because that's going to be a major conflict. And so, you know, I, I, that's, you know, things are not going to change <laughs> under Biden significantly with our foreign policy. In fact, I, th I think it's a little scarier, to be honest, because Trump kind of puts stuff out there that's really outrageous and then he gets pushed back. But we saw under President Obama that he was uh, what Glenn Ford of Black Agenda Report calls a more effective evil. He did it with a smile. He convinced people and he, you know, and, and while he drone bombed and escalated and, and basically, you know, infiltrated Africa with, you know, now we have troops in, you know, so many of the countries in Africa, most of them now, that, whereas Bush was not able to be successful in getting AFRICOM going, President Obama was. So we can't have any illusions about, you know, in the, in the macro level, there's not really that many differences. Over. All right. All right. Next question we have is for Lily. Um, how has Colombia been impacted by COVID-19? And have you been able to keep in touch with your family and find out how they're doing? Um, hi. Yes. Uh, my family, they're all good. Thank you. Um, it, hasn't been in, it hasn't been in great numbers like here because the Quarantine was very strict, but at the same time, uh, people have been affected in other areas, like mostly financially, because um, there were no safety provided for them to go to work, to 
to, you know, to almost anywhere. Everything was closed, like totally closed. And so now there's more poverty and more housing issues and, and, uh, medical, um, there was no, um, I wouldn't say resources, but there, there was no, not enough, um, medical care for, for people that isn't the, the insurance, all, all the healthcare is bad. It's really bad. And it got even worse with the pandemic. Um, and Madeline, who unfortunately is still having internet issues, but she did just comment that her understanding is that the government is using the pandemic to implement even more coercive and repressive measures on the people in Colombia. So uh, that's definitely not good to hear. Yes, one of the one of the one of the ways that they were uh, preventing people from going outside was using mostly military uh, personnel to, um, I would say, catch people on the street, give them fines, but some were um, assaulted also, you know, hit or or put in jail for being outside. So yeah, it has been difficult. All right, we're going to go back to one that can be for any woman that wants to jump in now. It's been about three years since the start of the Me Too movement. Where do you think that movement stands today? Angela? Go ahead. I think that in spite of the pushback that people are getting when they come forward, I think we are seeing the toppling of people who thought they were untouchable and were able to get away with and and do it with impunity you know the the assaults and other things that were committed against women and i think that there is a conversation happening around the country. Like, you know, a lot of the podcasts that I listen to, this is something that, that they talk about regularly, you know, examining the fact that, you know, in the nineties, us old people, uh, we, we didn't understand consent in the way that we do now. And I would attribute that to this movement that, you know, this discussion of consent, this discussion of, of supporting survivors, this discussion of, you know, how power is allowed to abuse and how far reaching that is. I think that 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 is a conversation that was a long time coming. And I think that because the movement opened the door to it, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. So, and nor should it, nor should it. Anyone else have anything for that one? Um, yeah, I mean, I just wanna add like uh, to the great point that Angela brought forward. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we go through with any movement, you know, we go through the phase where we get all the backlash at once and then the backlash dies down. So I think that right now we're kind of in the phase that it's dying down Now, hopefully it goes away, but um, I, I definitely feel like people are starting to understand the idea like, there's, you're less than likely to find um, a woman who hasn't faced uh, sexual sexual assault. So people are understanding that this is personally affecting 
um, you know, family members, and this is could also affect themselves, you know? So um, I think that with that being said, with that being acknowledged, you know, people are getting more affiliated with the movement. All right. It looks like Madeline managed to pop back on again. So I'm going to add her back to the stream. Were any of these questions ones that you want to answer while we have you? <laughs> no, no, I think, I think everyone handled the, uh, the answer is really well. The only thing I'd say about education is that if we take the source of education uh, away from property taxes, uh, we get to a better situation. If we use a wealth tax, if we use a corporate tax, if we do something where the people who live in the communities aren't the ones who are funding the education, then we have a better shot at equalizing it, making it fair throughout this country and, and elsewhere, because education is really important. And then if we cut the military budget by at least 50%, um, we're gonna be freeing up uh, lots and lots of, uh, that's 370, $370 billion with a B that would become available for things like improved and expanded Medicare for all, education for all and so on but we have to stop putting our putting the u.s knees on the proverbial necks of other countries and other and people within this country we just have to stop doing it and we've been doing it for all but about 25 years of the united states existence so we really need to keep on pushing and not give up on these issues definitely um, I've got another one here for Lily. Is there a Green Party in Colombia? Yes. <laughs> um, there's call, it's called uh, the Alianza Verde. Um, and um, back in 2010, uh, they had one um, candidate for president, and we were very enthusiastic about it. Um, Unfortunately, he didn't go that far. But we have now the mayor of Bogota, the capital. She's from Alianza Verde, and uh, she's the first high, high, in the first LGT. Oh my God, LGBTQIA um, person that holds a higher office in Colombia. Nice. And I'll just add, because I spent a lot of last year in Colombia and Venezuela, traveling back and forth, and um, I'm in contact with a person from the Alianza Verde who ran for mayor in a small mm -hmm. town, and we're trying, trying to make connection with um, the person who we think may be running for president of Colombia with the Green Party in the next election, uh, Camilo Rive uh, Romero, Camilo Romero, but we haven't been able to do that so far. Um, it's really critical for Greens in this country and Greens in Colombia to join together because there's a huge assault um, on Colombians and Colombia's environment by multinational corporations in Canada and also in the United States. And we need to be able to build an alliance against that. Can I ask a question related to that? 
because um, I'd love to hear from you, Lily, about the Green Party in Colombia, because I know the Green Party in Venezuela, my understanding is that it's actually a fairly right-wing party because the way that the election laws are um, in Venezuela, um, you know, that you see the, the opposition, what I understand is that the kind of the right-wing opposition uh, was able to basically create or be like the use the Green Party as, as one of their opposition parties. And so it's not representative of the values that we have here in the United States. What is the situation for the Green Party? In uh, the Green Party in Colombia is part of the Global Greens. So it follows um, mostly the same, um, the same um, principles as here. Uh, Madeline, you want to say something else about that? No, you're you're right. I, I just it also depends on the candidate. From what I what I learned, some of the Greens are, you know, not following the principles. But the ones that, but there are there is a group like the Alianza Verde that that is. So I guess it's just having to be be aware. Um, but no, you're absolutely right on that, Lily. Absolutely right. Um, all right, I've got another question that's for um, anyone that wants to jump in. Hopefully a lot of you will jump in on this one because you are all such inspiring women and hopefully young women are looking are hearing this and looking up to you and seeing your platform. So what advice would you give a young woman who's just now thinking about getting involved in either politics or activism? Um, who wants to take that one? It's your show, Madeline, why don't you go first? So I'm gonna, I'll just, I'll start it and then turn it over. Okay. You've seen whatever you've heard. The most important thing is just to inform yourself, to get, to get a, a working knowledge of what's going on. And you know, if my own history is, if your history will be like mine, you'll find within several hours that you might know more than the people who are supposed to be representing you um, and it's just as uh, it's just as important that women get, are involved as it is for men to be involved perhaps even more so because we're the people with the you know who have the families and the children and you know we're we're fighting remember when I was working on environmental issues it was the women who were in the forefront all the time because they if you're concerned about pollution in the water or pollution in the air or pollution in the ground it's because you were afraid that your children would ingest it or breathe it in or drink it in so you know it, having women involved is really important and there's no there's no real mystique about it um, it's all about just inform. It's about informing yourself and showing up, and saying something. And in some ways, you know, I, I was I always looked younger than I am, and I'm not only five feet tall. And I'd walk into a room with freeholders, and they'd look at me saying, you know, what would what could that young kids, that young girl have to say to me? And I would open my mouth and start out, and like, oh, 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 my goodness. So I think. You know, it's just, it really is just a matter. It's a matter of informing yourself and working with other people to buttress you on either side. So you're not into, you're not in it alone. 
but we're we're all we all have a political voice. I teach that to my students also. It's just a matter of exercising it and, and having confidence in it. All right, go ahead, Angela. For anybody who is watching this, because this is going to be shared, you know, across a bunch of streams, I want to make sure that uh -oh. any young person who is watching this who um, is assigned female at birth or is gender nonconforming, non-binary, or trans, we are talking to you, baby. So... I, I just need to lift that up, that this is not a bunch of cis folks <laughs> when we're talking about, you know, the issues that we're facing or, or you know, what compels us to run. We talking to you, too. So just just make sure you know you you're not exempt. We talking to you. And for young and I'm thinking of activist circles which goes back to the earlier question about our experience in activist circles and being, you know, being a woman and being a woman who moves and looks a certain way, people tend to mm -hmm. not take you seriously yeah. until yes. you, like you said, until, you know, you like what Madeline just said, then you start talking to them. And it's like, Oh snap. And it's like, yeah, not only am I cute, I got you. I came for your neck. So, you know, you didn't see me coming. And so what I would say to any young woman, any femme, any, you know, AFAB baby that's coming up, don't let them tell you what you don't know. Don't let them, don't let them talk down to you. And this is activist circles and this is also in political circles. People will talk over your head like you're not standing there. Stand on what you know. You're doing this because you have something in you that is compelling you to speak up. And it's like just what, what Madeline just said, use your voice. Don't be afraid to do that. Don't let anyone minimize you. Don't let anyone tell you that your lived experience does not bear on the work that you're doing. It absolutely does. The, the, the work that I do and the way that I move in political circles and in the world is is inseparable from the things that make me who I am, which include my gender, my race, my age, all of those things. And so, you know, stand on it, you know, don't let anyone minimize you or tell you that your lived experience and your own wisdom, don't let anyone tell you that that doesn't matter or minimize it. And also build alliances you know, so you have support, build alliances with people who believe like you do and, you know, make sure that, you know, you are, you are being supported because this work burns you out. It's exhausting. It's heartbreaking. It is oftentimes it feels thankless. So make sure that you have your support network around you too. All right. That was amazing. All right. Go ahead, Jessica. I just wanted to say also follow whatever you're passionate about. I mean, if you're coming up and and you there's something that really stands out that you really want to advocate for, follow that passion because you can see I'm in education. I'm an early childhood educator. I have a family child care and that what's what's brought me to uh, running for office. I wanted to be a board of education member because I wanted to have some influence over what was happening in the public schools. I teach kids 
that um, come up, they're infants and then they're toddlers and they're preschools. And I have values about play and outdoor education. And I knew that when the kids moved into public school, that they were getting a different style of education. And I wanted to make sure that I could jump onto the board of education and, and um, let them know um, what I believe that kid, young kids were supposed to, should be learning. And that's how I got elected because by showing everyone what I believed in. Um, I also wanted to add uh, just really quickly, you know, um, I think Jill mentioned in the beginning, you know, uh, we're the change that we've been waiting for, you know, whatever it is that you uh, believe in, just like uh, Jessica just said, you know, you need to fight mm -hmm. for it. It's your job at that point. Once you believe in it, that's your job. Um, for the for the ones of us, the, the young women, you know, who are uh, interested in joining movements, uh, take your step, you know, get started, do, do what you need to do to get started, whatever it is. Um, Kate um, mentioned in the uh, Facebook chat, um, a second ago, we have the Yes Caucus, the Young Eco-Socialists. Uh, I want to make a quick plug. Um, if you guys are interested, you know, um, in getting started, just go ahead and um, search up the Yes Caucus. And uh, this is, of course, in um, New Jersey, I believe. Um, if you guys are interested in starting on your own area, you're free to uh, hit us up and let us know. All right. Thank you guys so much. Um, unfortunately, Madeline is off again. Her internet is still being wonky. So I wanted to give her the last words, but unfortunately she's staying off. Um, but I did pop up one more time. The link, if you wanted to donate to her campaign, it's hoffmanforsenate.com slash donate. And even though she isn't here, I want to thank you all so much for being here. This has been an amazing conversation. You guys really are inspiring. And I am honored to be able to host this with you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. All right. Good night, everyone. Thank you for watching this. <laughs> thank you. And I should have it up in Bye. a couple of days. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone.